In today's episode, our guests Mina Jagannath, Achal Prabala, and Andreas Wolf talk with Miriam Zagemas about intellectual property and the global right to health in face of the COVID-19 pandemic. Human rights in times of crises. ECCHR's talk series on resistance and concrete utopias. With our talks, we want to create the necessary platform for actors from all over the world to discuss and advance global human rights struggles. Human rights are a concrete utopia worth defending, but how to defend them needs to be constantly reinvented. As we find ourselves in a time of profound global transitions, human rights actors need to refer to prevailing inequalities and the underpinning social questions. We initiated an event series that is now available as a podcast to rethink the struggle for and around human rights. Good morning, everybody. Good afternoon. Good evening, wherever you are. Welcome to ECCHR event series, Human Rights in Times of Crisis, of Resistance and Concrete Utopias. Um, this event was actually planned back in 2019, uh, together with our cooperation partner, the Federal Agency for Civic Education, obviously as an event in presence together with workshops, because even by that time we were aware um, that we as human rights organizations are facing a multiple and very complex global crisis, uh, climate crisis, uh, crisis of uh, water, of food, um, growing authoritarianism, um, which requires a new discussion with new actors, with other actors than the very close human rights community. And obviously, um, with the current uh, pandemic crisis, it became even clearer that a conversation is needed. We are hoping that at some point um, in the upcoming months, we will be able to fulfill our function as ECCHR to serve as a platform, as a hub for actors beyond Germany, beyond Europe, beyond law, an interdisciplinary mixed uh, coalition of people um, but as Alejandro Ancheta from Mexico said, we have to maintain our internationalist spirit. And so we have to bridge until this time has come. And so this is why we decided to aggregate one more uh, online um, conference series to the endless series where we're having already. So um, I want to welcome you today to our fourth session in the series um, that Wolfgang just introduced. And today we will talk about the global right to health and the reality of COVID-19 vaccine distribution. I'm very pleased to have with me Andreas Wolf. He is a, a medical doctor and he started to work for Medico International as um, a medical project coordinator and global health advocate in 1989. In 2019, he became the first Berlin representative of Medico International. Since then, we are sharing an office, which is very pleasant. And he is also a board member of the Geneva Global Health Hub, a civil society network focused on global health and governance. I'm also very happy to welcome Mina Jagannath. She is director of the global program um, at Movement Lab. 
And prior to joining the lab, Mina coordinated the community justice project in Miami, um, a Miami-based movement lawyering organization supporting campaigns for racial justice and human rights. She is a movement lawyer with an extensive background in activism and international human rights. She is joining us from the US. So, hi, Mina. Good to have you here. <clears throat> and then we have um, Achal um, Prahabala with us. He's a public health activist based in Bangalore. Um, he's a coordinator of the Access IBSA project, which campaigns for access to medicines and vaccines in India, Brazil and South Africa. Over the course of the last 19 years, starting with the AIDS, um, AIDS HIV crisis in South Africa, he has worked with nonprofits, governments, and multilateral um, organizations around the world on overcoming monopoly barriers on life-saving pharmaceuticals. Thank you also to you, Achal, for making the time and, um, you know, so late in India. So good to have you here. Today's session, um, I'm, uh, yeah, we're trying, once again, we're trying to bridge um, a very wide range of topics and we're trying to connect um, the current uh, COVID crisis, which has a lot of complex issues and questions. Combine this with the question of equitable access to vaccines and intellectual property rights, which are actually in the way of equitable access, and connect this to um, broader demands for social justice um, and I hope that we can also, will be talking about the role of global movements um, to, in the fight for global justice, while, you know, a lot of the debates and a lot of questions actually at least appear to be very technical and complex. We at ECCHR have, have not been really working on the topic of global health um, until the COVID crisis hit, where we once again felt, well, this is really an issue um, especially for an organization based in Europe that we really need to need to look at. And I think as we can see that the COVID crisis has worsened a lot of the global inequalities, but also the inequalities within societies. Um, I think, you know, the topic of global health ha is, you know, one of those prime, prime issues that, um, that we cannot escape. And especially as, um, as human rights lawyers, we cannot escape. Although probably or classically, for a lot of human rights lawyers, litigating the right to health is not necessarily something that, that um, is, is a very mainstream thing to do. Um, and so that's why I'm also very, very glad that, um, you know, together with the Movement Lab, that this is also something that this has been a collaboration over the last months, if not year, to really be thinking about how can we create also legal uh, approaches towards this problem. But um, yes, so I think also to bring us and our audience um, to a little bit on the same page of this, you know, to some extent complex issue, and then at the same time, probably also not so complex, very obvious issue. Achal, I, you know, you've been a health rights expert, as I just introduced you, for many, many years. Explain to us what is the current debate about the equal distribution of COVID-19 vaccines, and of course, not only the vaccines but also other medicines and, you know, you know, describe a bit of what's, what's the current status of the debate, also probably around, I guess that's for, for a German audience, very interesting, the RMNA biontech vaccines. Miriam, thank you. Firstly, it's a pleasure um, and thank you for having me. I've been working on this issue of access to medicines and vaccines for about 20 years and um, 
The problem really began with the creation of the World Trade Organization in 1996 and the institution of a global regime for peculiar kind of monopoly in pharmaceuticals because it was a monopoly that was sanctioned by the law. It exploded late 1990s and the early 2000s with the HIV AIDS crisis in sub-Saharan Africa, where AIDS drugs called antiretrovirals were priced at $10,000 per person per year. So you could live if you were diagnosed HIV positive, only if you had $10,000 a year, which very few people or no one, not individuals, nor governments in the majority of the world could afford that put a spotlight on this very strange system of state-sanctioned legal monopolies. Through the years, and in the last two decades especially, the problem was solved in some cases through intense activism and pressure and at the cost of thousands of lives, millions of lives when it came to AIDS. But then it only grew with the advent of monopolies on cancer drugs, and then monopolies on hepatitis C drugs, and then monopolies on cystic fibrosis drugs. It's a never-ending list uh, with a never-ending list of victims in not just poor countries, but increasingly rich countries as well. When Americans started pointing out the absurd price of new cancer medications, again, due to monopolies, when uh, white middle-class British families started protesting over the last five years, on the absurd cost of a life-changing cystic fibrosis medication that families who had children who were under the age of 10 needed literally in order to be able to breathe and then have a shot at a decent life devoid of pain for a few decades. And it had already become a global problem prior to the pandemic. But for those of us who had worked on this issue trying to combat these monopolies and create a more rational and humane system of uh, trade, of trade laws, of intellectual property systems. We imagined, I think at first, or I imagined, let me say, that the pandemic would be an opportunity to rethink this system, to see its failings, to understand the 20-year history that came before the pandemic, and to know very clearly from that history that a system of legal state-sanctioned monopolies on pharmaceuticals would not work to deliver access to vaccines in the pandemic. Instead, what happened, I think to everyone's surprise, to my growing horror, because I worked on this every single day of the pandemic, is that the system did not reform. Not only did it not reform, but it metastasized into a creature more complex, more powerful, with more monopolies. So we live in a state of vaccine apartheid. Uh, while in Germany right now, over 60% of all adults have received a full dose of vaccinations against COVID, while the figures in similar countries in Europe and the United States are in that region between 60 and 70%, while some countries have done even better, like Israel and the United Arab Emirates, you have uh, the continent of Africa. Sub-Saharan Africa has less than uh, 3% of its adults vaccinated on average. This is not only a matter of inequity, it's a matter of shooting oneself in the foot, because I think that the typical Western response to the pandemic, which has been let's vaccinate as many people, our people as we can, let's forget about everyone else, they can deal, unfortunately doesn't really work out. As you'll see in Germany today, or as you'll see in the United States today, uh, in Germany now, nearly 100% of all new COVID cases, which are on the rise, 
uh, the Delta variant. The Delta variant came from India. At a time, because I lived through it, and I know this intimately, we had less than 3% of our population vaccinated. That led to a horrific surge with the most grotesque scenes of death and destruction over April and May. I lived through that. It was honestly one of the worst periods of my life. But the same situation can happen in any other society with our very low rates of vaccination. The variants that are created out of the, the monster mix of low rates of vaccination, uh, inadequate hospitalization, then come back to countries which have been highly vaccinated and render all of that effort, the money, the effort to vaccinate over 60% of the adults, less effective. Now, we know vaccines work. So even though there is a rise in cases in the United States or in Europe, it doesn't mean that people are dying at the same rate. It means that the unvaccinated are at great risk. And it means that the hospital system has to deal with the, the few cases that uh, need hospitalization even after vaccina vaccination, uh, even after being infected uh, after a vaccine. Now, what it leads to is a state of panic. And that panic can be addressed in a couple of different ways. The way that the European Union and the US are choosing to address that panic is by authorizing booster shots to increase the immunity and the protection to people who are already fully vaccinated while letting people who are unvaccinated, which as we all know is where variants, where variants come from, continue to remain unvaccinated. BioNTech, the, the shining jewel in the German empire of the vaccine industrial monopoly complex is very much at fault in this system of unequal distribution of vaccines. 86% of all vaccines made by Pfizer and BioNTech have gone to rich countries. The rest of those vaccines have gone to middle-income and low-income countries. And the figure that's gone to act, actually gone to the lowest-income countries on Earth is in the single digits. They're still better than Moderna, the alternative mRNA vaccine. 88% of Moderna's vaccines to date have gone to rich countries. This is a system of artificial scarcity. It's a system that has been growing and enabled by the states that house these multinational corporations that have created these vaccines with public money. The German government can do many, many things in order to vaccinate the world. So can the US president. In fact, the United States and Germany are the two best placed governments to take decisive action to do something about vaccinating the world. Why? Because not only did they fund the uh, BioNTech-Pfizer vaccine with your money, with your taxpayer money, up to the tune of something like $500 million in federal research grants, not for doses, just to underwrite the research. But they've paid out billions of dollars more in terms of pre-ordering and buying doses, including boosters. But the technology itself is being kept secret. The intellectual property is not being shared. What that means, unfortunately, is that of the 40 or 50 companies in India, of the numerous companies across the world, literally from places you'd never imagine, from Kazakhstan to Argentina to Brazil to South Korea to Indonesia, who could potentially make an mRNA vaccine, because paradoxically, even though it's the newest vaccine on the block, the newest technology is in fact the easiest to make, none of them actually can make it because the recipe isn't being shared. 
It's a complex puzzle, and I can offer more clues as to why the recipe isn't being shared. But I think that the point for now is that the injustice is that we are tolerating vaccines that have been funded with large amounts of taxpayer money in the United States and in Germany. We are tolerating those vaccines being entirely private property to the detriment, not just of the rest of the world, places like I work in, for instance, like India and South Africa, but to you in Germany as well, because our problems are going to come back to be your problems. And finally, that system is not going to work for you either. Uh, and, and it is inexplicable that we allow this situation to, to continue. And I hope to explore ways in which we can discuss the role, particularly of Germany, in solving this crisis. Thank you, um, um, Acha, for this uh, really comprehensive overview over this very uh, complex topic. Thank you. Um, Andreas, I think, you know, when we talk about the, uh, uh, Achal called it uh, vaccine apartheid. So, and also you as, as Medico have criticized, uh, you know, the nuances or the very explicit racism and um, um, prejudices in, in German discourse over the vaccine distribution. Yeah, probably before, I would also want you to speak about where you see the systematic problems that are being revealed through the crisis. But yeah, how, how, where do you see, um, you know, racism in the debates and how would you, you know, um, connect this probably also to some post-colonial attitudes? Mm. Yeah, thank you for this, this first, this question that you put forward to me. I, I would say this is, this is a very clear sign of this kind of bigottery in, in dealing with a situation when, when there is a, um, a scarcity of resources. And you have both the feeling of somebody is going to steal from us, which, which is very obvious in the case of the, um, the BioNTech technology, when the German government sees themselves as the defender or protector of keeping, keeping this technology to themselves. So in that way, And at the same time, there is this kind of perspective of the others are not able to produce it. So it was a very clear so word when it comes to how, how should the, the Africans produce these vaccines, which are so highly technologically. And uh, interestingly, when you look more into the details, you find out it is not that complicated. It is, of course, new technology, but it has worked on for decades to make messenger RNA technology workable. And then when you look more into the details, as just a, a new report has been delivered by MSF, who really issued also some research By, by Imperial College from London, you, you find out it is much easier to produce this messenger RNA to, uh, vaccines than the, um, the full, the full um, the, the AstraZeneca, the AstraZeneca uh, technology, which you would need a much more controlled uh, high-tech biotechnology lab. So in that way, interestingly, both Both sentiments at the same time are contradictory to each other. So on the one hand, you see that the German public feels that this is something that, that cannot be replicated by 
lower uh, industrialized societies, uh, which which is actively playing a post-colonial sentiment. And at the same time, it feels that something is going to take it away from us. And this is something we need to protect. I think this is this is this way of of the the what we see at the moment in the current discourse. When it when it comes to the more structural the more structural causes or that that, um, that that looks behind the problems on healthcare systems, it is very very obvious that it is very close to the profit orientation that, that Achal has described on the level of of vaccine or medicines production, but it is much more also something as we see is that this um, this right to health and access to healthcare, this is enshrined in human rights covenants and the WHO constitutions. This can only be realized when it's the public policy takes responsible for accessible health services. I think this is this is maybe maybe the the crucial point when it comes to that the, the, the policies of the last decades of leaving um, social institutions, not only healthcare, also education, to the private sector, it means that the ones who cannot pay for health are, won't get it. And then this increases the, the inequities as much because poor people have more need in healthcare services. So this is something that, that is a basic... This, this is something that, that this private, what we see, privatized health systems don't take responsibility other than selling their product, their services to those who can afford them. This is the same with pharmaceutical companies, which are obviously singled out at the moment because of the, the need to distribute um, the vaccines much more equally. But it is the same with privatized health services, healthcare services. We see this, and I think Achal could talk about this also in India, which is a, a highly privatized healthcare system. But also in Germany, where we see now more and more private companies taking over healthcare services. And, and this, is, this is something that, that contradicts this notion of the rights, the right-based approach to health. And this is what we see as, as the core, as the core problem in the whole debates. Thank you. Yeah, um, my, um, um, I think that was in fall 2020, my colleague uh, at ECCH, Karina um, Teurer, she wrote an article where, where she well described how also the law and the intellectual property regime that Achal also meant, uh, you know, described in the beginning how this also clearly has a typical post-colonial sort of mechanism because it, for one, it enables in some extent uh, access to certain uh, information. So it enables, uh, if you look at, you know, for example, indigenous knowledge about um, uh, medicines, it enables the access, um, helps you know, uh, well-trained lawyers and pharmaceutical experts to... Um, 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 yeah, to appropriate it, to, to, you know, to formulate it in a way that it can actually be patented. And so then once that has happened, it falls under the intellectual property regime of the WTO and national regimes. And then that means you can exclude it. So it's a typical phenomenon of extracting and excluding then benefits, um, uh, profits and so on. So, and I think we should be probably also, and therefore, I, you know, I'm, I'm very glad that also Medico is really... Uh, um, 
confronting this racism that we have in our debate that the Germans are particularly proud of BioNTech without really acknowledging the que actually you know questioning whether whether it's actually legitimate to have property rights when it comes to knowledge that should benefit and that actually contributes to the right to global health, which should be a public good, no? that actually cannot be appropriated. But um, Mina, I, you, know, you are um, a US-trained movement lawyer and, um, and you decided uh, um, you know, as a group, uh, together with your colleagues, you've, you've drawn together a network of lawyers um, from, from around the world, more or less, to be working on this topic and to be, you know, developing litigation strategies. So, you know, how come? How did you decide to go on this topic? And probably describe, all, can you describe a couple of, you know, challenges that, um, that we have faced probably in, on the way? Sure. Well, thank you, uh, first of all, for having me um, to thank you to ECCHR, to Miriam Wolfgang for hosting this uh, fantastic series of panels. And uh, I'm glad to hear that it's going to keep going. Um, well, to your question, you know, after having practiced at the local level in the U.S. for about a decade, uh, it has become apparent to me that the human rights and racial justice uh, violations that we see at the local level um, here are symptoms of root causes that are global in nature and therefore require global coordination to address. So when the COVID-19 pandemic began, it stood out alongside the climate crisis as one of the clearest examples of where uh, transnational collaboration, solidarity and strategy building would be necessary to identify solutions that didn't leave whole swaths of the world behind. But I must say that it wasn't until we were witnessing the devastation of the Delta variant in India in the spring and a fellow lawyer colleague from there called upon many of us in the global north to take action that um, I actually began to, to work on the issue in earnest. Um, and what that meant was uh, leveraging the power and knowledge of the network uh, I'm coordinating at Movement Law Lab, the global network of movement lawyers, which uh, you mentioned, um, in collaboration with other networks of human rights lawyers to begin to think together about how those of us in the global north could and should work together with our colleagues in the global south in pushing on our governments to support equitable and universal access to uh, COVID vaccines, therapeutics, healthcare technologies um, as a matter of human rights. And many of us, you know, as we began to meet uh, some months ago, uh, beginning in May, we felt that it was a moral imperative for us to act. Uh, and of course, as you mentioned, you know, challenges, the, there are obvious challenge, practical challenges of, you know, trying to figure out a strategy of across jurisdictions where jurisprudence is different, where legal systems are different, um, where, you know, human rights obligations under various international uh, uh, human rights instruments are also different, um, to come up with some way to piece together, you know, a strategy that doesn't so much focus on the, the, the technical IP arguments, but actually um, highlights and exposes the the human rights um, issues and that have come up in this pandemic. And so, you know, I think I think one of the things that we see as we try to you know shape claims and things like that is that there there aren't any easy avenues actually, and so much of what it is that where, you know, the uh, the obvious injustice is not so um, obviously uh, litigated in uh, in courts or even um, before the human rights bodies. But uh, but I think many of us feel that there there isn't an option to um, not say anything and there isn't an option really to not not try to push on these systems to 
really do what it is that they um, are supposedly designed to do, which is protect um, the human rights of, of people across borders all around the world. Um, but, you know, the other reason why I think it's important to work on this issue is that uh, at a more like meta level, it helps us build the challenge, the channels of communication and relationships across borders that um, we know are going to be necessary for future global crises. Um, the more we exercise the muscle of international solidarity and transnational cooperation um, and collaboration, the stronger we will get in working together in the future. So we have to recognize moments as these uh, as opportunities for us to construct something new and prevent the same kinds of injustices from happening again when you know, the next pandemic comes around. Thank you, Mina. Um, yeah, maybe maybe we can now discuss questions. Achal, also you mentioned that. So, so what you know, what should we do now? So, what could be strategies, right? So, I think one strategy that Mina and um, also myself have been looking at is sort of how can we use courts? How can we use court proceedings? Potentially the UN system. And yeah, as also Mina said, there are a number of challenges. And I think primarily, and I think I've never seen this with so much clarity and force is to see that the intellectual property regime is so strong and so solid that it, it leaves so little room for individual persons negatively affected, not having access to vaccines, to actually challenge that. I think it's amazing how, I mean, so many lawyers have been using, spending months of thinking of something and now we've come up with some ideas which, you know, are great, but highly innovative and way beyond sort of normal litigation strategies because, there, you know, it's hard even to find a venue that, you know, where you, anyone would even have legal standing. So that's, that's really amazing. So I think we want to, I will come back to that question also, what's the role of law in this? But probably now it's, it's to Achal and then also Andreas. So, you know, what, what are your strategies? What do you think is needed now, most of all, to challenge government's positions, but probably also the intellectual property regime or the, our health rights regime that we currently see globally? Um, Achal, do you want to probably start? Sure. Uh, thank you, Maria. Look, in the course of my work, there are lots and lots of difficult conversations I have to engage in about the role of the United States and Germany, particularly. And this is because I just want to make clear that the power lies in the United States and Germany. Um, if India had the same equivalent power, I have no doubt that we'd be behaving in exactly the same way. In fact, I know because we are a sort of sub-imperial vaccine power ourselves. And the reason that we have now crossed a milestone of vaccinating more than 50% of all adults with at least one dose, which is an enormous feat given the population of this country, is because we suspended vaccine exports to 91 other poor countries. So one third of the world, which was waiting for vaccines from India in order to vaccinate itself, are not getting those vaccines. They have not been getting those vaccines since March of this year because India has effectively usurped those vaccines. It's a complicated situation because I live here and have every sympathy for my family that needs vaccines. At the same time, I realize that the vaccines that my family, that my loved ones have received, in part have come at the cost of giving those vaccines to healthcare workers in sub-Saharan Africa. So I'm implicated in this as well, is what I want to say. But in terms of real strategies, look, I think what is hard, and it's a hard question to deal with when it comes to using uh, law-based methods, is this idea that there is anything in the law that can compel the use of the power to make a government do something for another country. And I think this is a really interesting and complex tangle 
Uh, it's not quite clear uh, what the avenues are. I think that there are measures in the law that promote government action should government decide to do it itself. And so in the United States, where I know a little more about the way uh, US law works, there are things like the Defense Production Act. There are things like government patent use. These are essentially emergency provisions that are encoded in the law, rarely used when it comes to things like government patent use. Um, and when it comes to the Defense Production Act, very rarely used for anything other than you know, guns and ammunition and um, radars and satellite systems and so on. But nevertheless, with ingenuity, possible to apply by a government to justify action to compel uh, private corporations in their border to do something for another country. And there are precedents around this. And so there are some ways by which governments like the government of Germany and the United States can be compelled to take the kind of action that the corporations themselves within those borders are not doing. I think there are a couple of different ways in which the leverage exists. And one is moral. And the moral leverage is the fact that the research and development of these vaccines was funded by these governments. And that is the most significant lever, I think, that governments have to say that, look, we have a right to intervene in how this vaccine is distributed around the world. The process of vaccine development, which is the risk that companies take to make something like a vaccine, is what justifies, in a certain theory of economics, uh, the monopolies that the vaccine manufacturers then have on that vaccine. But when the process has no risk because somebody else has paid for it entirely, not only paid for it, has actually you know, done more than just justify the risk by providing these pre-orders, right, which are then effectively a profit guarantee in advance, it's very difficult to justify why you would actually also need a monopoly uh, in perpetuity, virtually, at least in the short run, to then further make profits of something that was effectively uh, funded for you. Now, the legal leverage that governments have, I think, as you said, is exploratory. It's not something that has clear precedence. It's not something that people have even thought about that seriously before. But there is, I think, one other lever which is really important, which is the popular will and the manner by which people asking for this of their government have, in the United States at least, managed to get what they want. So it was organizing in the United States around the Biden White House's uh, stance against the TRIPS waiver, which was by default, they just inherited the Trump administration stance that did eventually lead to a consideration of what the U.S. trade representative should do, which finally resulted in a cautious and uh, limited but support of the TRIPS waiver proposal at the World Trade Organization, which would essentially waive in a temporary manner, all monopolies related to pharmaceuticals, treatments or vaccines in the pandemic. So I think popular will and, and being able to communicate that will to the government as the desire of people on the basis of them being owners of these vaccines, as well as, of course, uh, the, the people who elect the government into power, has made a difference. And I think it can still do so. I do think, however, that this self-interest argument, which has been a little muddled sometimes, because I think in different points in the pandemic, it was never quite clear whether um, Germany or the United States could actually get away with just vaccinating itself and then leaving everyone else to be, right? 
Uh, now, I think it's increasingly clear that you can kind of get away with it, but not fully, right? So what you're left with is a perpetual state of anxiety. Uh, anxiety that translates into economics, by the way, because the anxiety of the Delta variant in Germany or the United States has a real effect on uh, hiring, on the economy in general, on, on the political atmosphere in terms of whether you know vaccine mandates are necessary or mask mandates are necessary, et cetera, et cetera, right? And I think that the self-interest angle is underexplored, and it should be, because there are ways to clamp down on variants, which is by cutting off the virus. And that can be done by vaccinating the world. Andreas, you have been enter entertaining a campaign yeah. um, directed at the German government. Yes. And um, yeah, probably explain a bit what that was about, what your demands were. I think it has ended by now, no? Or no, we are still, still not. Okay. <laughs> we are and then, then also, I would like to say, what do you think about, I, I Acha said, popular vi will. It's mm. true. That is what needed. And I think that is something yeah. powerful to put yeah. Yeah. governments on fresh. And I wonder, do we lack a bit of it in Germany? Um, yeah. yeah. It, it, Where's, do we, is there enough? Yeah. Do you feel there's enough we, people we can mobilize on this topic? Yeah. yeah. I think what we do did do or what we are still doing with our Make Them Sign campaign is very much what the what the title says. It was about get this waiver, this TRIPS waiver signed. So as a first step, as an important but first step only to really get vaccines production and medicines production um, globally distributed and available for all people. So this was more like a... I, I remember, I, I compare this a little bit to the, the Doha Declaration in 2003, 2002, 2003, when the HIV-AIDS crisis hit and it was clear that, that the production capacities that existed already at that time in India explicitly must be needed, must be used for a global approach for global access to medicines. And this was then put into, into negotiations at the, the, the TRIPS Council at the, the World Trade Organization. And at the same time now, it's, it's a very similar situation. There are, lever there are mechanisms within the, the WTO and within the TRIPS Council that you can waive for a certain time, for a certain moment, these uh, patent laws. And when and this, this should be a very clear moment when this needs to happen in such a disaster. And I think this is a bit like, like the, the push or what we try to push in the German public and as part of a European and global network. So we are not doing this in Germany alone, but we do it particularly in Germany because the German government has this very stubborn position at the moment to say, okay, it is nothing to do with the patterns. It is just a problem of technical bottlenecks. And we rely and we, we believe our companies to do the best that they can. And this is, this is, an absurd situation in, in, in a society that knows that the economy is organized in a competitive way. And of course, companies will not, will just act in their own interest rather than in the public interest. I think this, this hasn't been caught really sufficient public attention in Germany. Interestingly, we have three parties, like even the Social Democrats and the Greens and the Left Party, who would say, who said, okay, we are for this patent waiver and we are for technology transfer. And so in that way, we have 
like if you see it from constituencies, a bit like half of the society on our side. And even in the, the conservative field beyond the, the purely neoliberal uh, uh, party, the FDP, it is it, the, the, the idea that it is necessary to compromise on this and also in your own interest because you have to beat the virus everywhere and not just in your own country is the mantra of the day. But, but interestingly, and then this, I would say, shows the weakness of the public policy, that they were not willing or not able to really enforce mechanisms, as Achal said, to say, okay, if we pay for your research and we pay public money for and give you guarantees for selling when you develop this thing, then, of course, we demand that you put the knowledge in the public sphere. There were mechanisms like the uh, COVID-19 access technology pool of the WHO, uh, which was, is still today empty because this were not, was not happening. And I think this also shows on the other side, and we are still pushing for it. I think the, the, the trade negotiations are very slow processes. That's always a problem. And I think this doesn't fit with the dynamic of a pandemic. That's, that's what we see very clearly at the moment. There will be a ministerial council meeting end of November at the WTO, which probably will be the, the moment of some kind of decision. And we will continue with our efforts at least to this point to really make uh, enough noise. And we hope that a new election, that the new elections that are coming up end of this month will produce some new results. Never know if end of November we have a new government um, that that might, might uh, change something in, in that work. So this is, this is uh, that what we do and we know it is, it is a, a really joint effort globally and this is this is what is part of the what we have learned from the AIDS movement I would say from the 2000s that that we can mobilize the public and we also can use legal mechanisms in this um, in this moment even if I'm not an expert on this but I think this is something that that we were able and this is something that is really, different from the years I remember from the 2000s, early 2000s. This took much more time that time to really come up to the point where we had a medicines patent pool. And it took just weeks last year to really mobilize around such an issue. And of course, it's still too slow. And we still feel um, unnecessary deaths are coming and, uh, and happened because the, the global community could not agree on a really joint strategy, but they would rather, and this, this is the, also the, the, the sad story of it, the, the, the global community was content with the, with the concept of saying, okay, let's have one big Indian company organize all the, produce all the vaccines for the, for the global south. And and if this is when not working, AIDS, you mean HIV? Uh, vac uh, no, this no. was the this was the the, the COVID nineteen vaccine, okay. the the India Serum okay. Institute with a cooperation with right. uh, um, AstraZeneca mm -hmm. and uh, the Oxford campaign. And if this mechanism just for some good reason also got broken because India were desperate 
in, in needing to, to vaccinate as quickly as possible its own society. How, how are we to blame uh, India for closing, closing the, um, the exports? But because our neoliberal economy functions like this, so that we say, okay, we have the one hub here and the one hub there, and we have not developed mechanisms to quickly distribute also production capacity. And this could have been happened in the last 15 months. Thank you. Mina, um, so one small question and then a bigger one. So one small, small question, Acha said that we should be exploring the self-interest angle more in, in bringing into the public debate. We also discussed that if that shouldn't also be a legal um, argument to say governments are obliged to protect their own population and therefore the rest of the world needs to be vaccinated. I find that, you know, I always have a little bit of a stomach ache with that because it sounds like, yeah, I just want to make sure that, you know, I'm even better off than, than already now, no, here in Germany. But why, you know, Mina, I, I, what is your opinion about that one? And then more broadly, probably, you know, you, you did this, started to describe this, but I think, you know, where do you generally see the connection between movements movement lawyering and then the transnational lawyering. So, and I think you'd started to describe this, but I think you can take a bit more time of elaborating um, on this. And yeah, I think probably also as Andreas said, you know, maybe we also need to see it as at least this time, you know, probably we need to rehearse this as a global community to be quicker as civil society with every challenge that comes. I guess otherwise we totally despair with all the, you know, <laughs> with all the deaths and crises and, and, and the devastation we've now seen in the, in the COVID crisis. Yeah, no, thanks. I mean, and thanks for, for bringing that question. I mean, it's, uh, I think the self-interest argument is a pragmatic one, but it is a um, morally and politically um, just uncomfortable argument to make because at the end of the day, I think we want to be moving towards uh, a society and a world in which we do see our lives that are um, our, our, our own rights to be interlinked with the, those of, of others in the world. And in fact, our um, human rights treaties and, and obligations do say that we have to do what we, the most in our power to ensure that we are not violating the, the rights of people extraterritorially outside of our, our countries and that we uh, are committed to international cooperation and in finding solutions to issues that are systemic in nature where you know, the, the, the rights of millions of people across the world are being uh, impacted by particular political positions or uh, particular issues. And so I, I think... I think that for us as, as human rights lawyers, I think that we have to make both of those arguments at the same time. Yes, it is a reality that people's uh, health in Germany, in the U.S. and other places are uh, is impacted by the proliferation of variants across the world. And so, in that in that very you know sort of practical sense, yes, our lives do uh, are impacted by uh, the the low rates of vaccination elsewhere in the world, but. Uh, but we should also talk about this as a uh, not just, you know, a matter of self-interest, but as a, a matter of, you know, the upholding the the principles that, you know, underpin our democratic societies, the, the principles that underpin uh, many of the, as I said, the, the human rights obligations that states have signed on to and um, that also... 
uh, are going to be very necessary when it comes to other crises. As as I was mentioning earlier, you know, the climate crisis is is you know threatening us uh, in in different ways across the world, um, and uh, and that is not a crisis that can be dealt within any one country's borders either. And so, um, you know, as we see crises like the pandemic coming up, we need to actually come up with a legal regime and, and reinforce a legal regime that um, supports international cooperation so that we don't let states just kind of ignore their, their human rights obligations, but actually we hold them to account and strengthen um, those mechanisms that provide uh, redress and remedy for systemic rights violations. I think... You know, when it comes to the connection between movements and um, and law, I mean, you know, as Achal and um, Andreas were saying, you know, the other side has the sort of legal regime on their side. They have economic resources. They have the political connections. And uh, and we on 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 the side of um, the vast majority of the, the global population don't have those things on our side. but uh, and, and so our legal strategy must be anchored by organizing, but anchored by uh, expressions of people's will. And, and so that's where, you know, movement lawyering comes into the picture. It's, you know, sometimes called community lawyering, law and organizing, people's lawyering, but it's founded on a, a theory of social change that recognizes that activism and social movements um, have always been the driving force of social change. Uh, And when people who are similarly aggrieved get together and fight to change systems producing injustice, then it's our role as lawyers, um, lawyers of conscience, human rights lawyers, lawyers seeking transformative change to support those movements uh, using the legal tools that we have at our disposal. Oftentimes, you know, existing legal regimes and frameworks, as we say, with the IP regime, which are shaped by powerful interests, such as, you know, big pharma companies, corporations, um, the the law is part of the problem um, and it provides cover for unjust systems and, and structures. And so, you know, we lawyers who recognize this can use our knowledge of the law uh, to support movements in changing policies and transforming institutions uh, to protect uh, the rights of the many who are um, currently d- disadvantaged by unjust systems. And the medicine system, you know, as Achal and uh, Andreas have put it so well, is one of those unjust systems. It um, has been influenced by big pharma companies, uh, the private health industry, um, in such a way that it it serves their interests over the interests of the broader public. Um, and uh, so for us, you know, when when glo- when countries in the global south stand up with rightful indignation about the unconscionable way that governments in the global north have hoarded the vaccine supply and protected the interests of big pharma, um, we as human rights lawyers must figure out how we can use our skills to support them. So that's where, you know, we come into the picture with... Um, doing what we can to support the efforts of people on the ground, uh, the People's Vaccine Alliance, and other efforts to uh, achieve equitable access to COVID um, healthcare technologies. I mean, I have more that I can say, but... Yes, yeah. <laughs> no, thank you. That's great. Um, so we are, we are now receiving questions also from the audience. Um, and um, I think there is, there's one legal question which, which I would, uh, again, direct to you, um, Mina, and that is, is there any legal leverage to defend groups that are being denied a fair access to vaccine, for example, in India, or can you imagine such litigation in the future? So, 
briefly <laughs> uh, explain us some of uh, some ideas that probably you have. Yeah, well, um, it's not just my ideas, but ideas from you know Miriam and and um, many of the other lawyers that have been getting together on this. I mean, you know, as as we were saying, this uh, issue requires uh, a high level of coordination and transnational. Uh, collaboration across uh, the global north and global south. And so the hope is that, you know, people who have been denied this access or, or people who find themselves in a situation where they are able to um, show an, an injury uh, because of states like Germany and the UK uh, and Canada and others, a refusal to support a TRIPS waiver, um, if, if we can if we can show that that injury is also linked to the refusal of these countries to um, to support the waiver, um, which we think is a violation of human rights obligations to the rights of life and um, international cooperation, then um, then we think you know we think it's a worthwhile claim to uh, bring in um, you know any forum that where this where this claim will will be able to be litigated and of course like as as you were saying before Miriam I think the question of a forum is is a tough one because um as we were saying the there isn't a, a clear path however there you know that is the kind of claim that we have to be willing to take and to uh and and to you know reinforce the importance of following human rights obligations yeah, thank you. Um, I think the, another question that we have here is probably for both Achal and, and Andreas, because um, um, it, it is a question, I guess, where lawyers always think that law is most important and arguments of rights is most important. But I think probably you have maybe a bit of a different perspective. And the question is, where and how would it be possible and strategic to argue that privatization of healthcare services is a violation of human rights? So I guess in that question lies also, is it possible that at some points it's not um, a good way to argue? Hmm. Andreas, do you want to start and then Acha? Yeah, what I think maybe starting from that point that, that privatization, to, to show the effects of privatization of healthcare services. I think if privatization means people who cannot afford services cannot access them, then this is a clear neglect of their right to health. And this is the, the um, access to healthcare services should not be limited to the ability to pay. This is a very clear legal argument, I, I think. And the, the question is, has been always raised how big this portion of healthcare services is legitimate that people can demand from the public, from the state, uh, from their own state, because uh, the it doesn't exist a legal responsibility for extending this globally to what I know. That's that's a bit that has been always a problem. And then this was this always this um, argument of the the progressive realization of rights mm -hmm. that would give states the, um, the a loophole to say, okay, we are. We are working on it, but we have not reached it completely. But, but when you go back from an existing public health system through a, a privatization strategy without assuring that everybody is still having access to these health care services, that might be an, an idea that, that I could think of to say, okay, this kind of privatization needs to be um, drawn back. But 
but even in Germany, as we see some ways of of re-communalization or re-publicization of, of private uh, health services, I don't see that this has been used much as an argument on um, on a violation of human rights. But Charles, what what do you think? So you do in your advocacy, do you find the rights argument um, a useful one or a powerful one, or do you not like, or is it not probably much more about? I know, convincing the powerful, no, or, or you know, convincing the policymakers. But yeah, yeah, no, no, no. Look, the rights argument is very powerful. But let me give you an example, a concrete example of this. You know, when I mentioned self-interest a little earlier, uh, obviously that's not because I think that vaccinating the world is not the right thing to do. I mean, I obviously think it is, and we found that we've reached the limits with some of those arguments, and so we're also trying to make it as broadly as possible to appeal to as many people. But I think a part of the self-interest argument as well, when it comes to monopolies on pharmaceuticals and vaccines, is that they really only affect people who look like me or uh, black and brown people, right? Which has been the dominant theme of the access to medicines movement over the last 20 years. When I started working 20 years ago, it was inconceivable that Germany had a problem with access to medicines or that monopolies could cause a problem with access in the United Kingdom. And yet, Uh, just two years ago, just a year before the pandemic, I was working almost full-time on a case involving a cystic fibrosis drug that the National Health Service, one of the best-funded public health systems in a country with socialized medicine, in one of the richest economies on earth, could not afford on its own guidelines. It has guidelines that evaluate the cost of a drug versus its benefit. Uh, could not afford or can be the first ever treatment for cystic fibrosis to tax-paying NHS funding patients who lived in the United Kingdom, who are not even poor, they were middle class, right? And they could not afford it themselves, their NHS could not afford it, that standoff lasted five years. So this idea, I think that pharmaceutical monopolies really disproportion, they might disproportionately hurt us, but they hurt everyone. And I think that's part of the larger self-interest idea that I, I think um, I'm interested in thinking about, which is This idea that, you know, for us to democratize Pfizer-BioNTech technology, it is something that we must do solely for the rest of the world. It is something that is ultimately in Germany's self-interest to do for Germans and for the public health and continued well-being of people within Germany. Because this is, you know, the snake that's in your backyard, yes, that eventually bites you. Uh, this has happened repeatedly. And I think that that is very clearly a violation of lots of things, including rights, which I think can very much be litigated domestically and successfully. Thank you. So I think we have another very technical question, um, which I think need to be, or I don't know, Achal or Mina can choose, um, which is, so how much would compulsory licensing which Germany has been advocating for. So I think that what it means is that every national state should be issuing a compulsory license. Let's say South Africa issue compulsory license so that they can uh, get access to the Biontech patent and the same for Mali and Indonesia and so on. Um, in, would, it be, why, you know, would that be more effective in comparison to a TRIPS waiver for making vaccines accessible? What's... What's the difference of those those two approaches? I'd be happy to take a stab at this just because I am particularly enraged at this Super. European Very Union good. proposal, yes. which is yes. to increase compulsory licensing. 
You know, one of the things I just want to say I appreciate about Merkel and Germany is that she said, no, I don't believe in the truth waiver. This is bad for Germany. This is uh, the bedrock of our economy, which now I think BioNTech truly is. I think now it constitutes, you know, 1% of the German GDP. Uh, the European Union, the way that the European Union said no at the WTO was to say, this is not a no. Think of it as a counter proposal, which is meaningless because the counter proposal is let's make compulsory licensing easier. Compulsory licensing, which, of course, the European Union, along with the United States, has bitterly fought through sanctions, through threats, through every kind of bilateral dissuasion that they could do to any country that wanted to use it over the last 25 years, right? Now, they want that process to be made more easy and put to use for vaccines. So, firstly, it's ridiculous. You know, vaccines are biologics as compared to antiretrovirals, which are small molecules, which are simple drugs, and then these are complex drugs, right? The small molecules, they have, you know, maybe 5, 10, 15 patents surrounding them that you have to crack. And really only sometimes one uh, significant uh, patent on the molecular entity itself that needs to be compulsorily licensed. When it comes to vaccines, there are something like 200 patents surrounding that. You know, many biologics have literally patents, patent estates that are in the hundreds, those are a combination of patents that the company owns, a combination of things that have been licensed and sub-licensed, and then, you know, very complexly made estates. To identify patents surrounding a particular vaccine, I guarantee you it would take you six months. To litigate for a compulsory license on all of those 250 patents then, and simply to even identify who you would be litigating against in order to get that compulsory license would take you another couple of years. I, I, and this is not something I'm making up out of my hat. These are very difficult, complex, bureaucratic processes to run. Even if you were to compress them into a couple of months, you're still having to do it 200 times in order to get one uh, permission to make one vaccine, right? It is the most ridiculous counterproposal. It is not a counterproposal. It's actually a very polite way of saying no with you know, typical passive aggression, it should not be even treated as anything similar to the TRIPS waiver because it's not. Thank you for this very clear answer. And Mina, yeah, you want to say something? Well, just a very short addendum to that, just to say is I don't even know that it's polite. To me, it sounds, it's, it's rude and it's in bad faith um, because it's so clear that compulsory licensing uh, is such a, is a, inefficient and long route. And uh, it's that the European counterproposal seems designed to protect big pharma. Mina, there's another question for you. Um, and I think then I will have one last question for, for, for all of us to, to, to wrap up. But the question to you, Mina, is regarding mobilizing popular will, what previous experiences of movement lawyering can inspire the efforts? I think we've heard about the campaign for um, um, the, the HIV um, medicines, which, you know, I think you described as, as an inspiring example, Mina, from the lawyering field. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, I think that sometimes law and organizing can can act in concert. And, I, and so I think sometimes filing a lawsuit can also help bring, bring actors together on the ground. But I think uh, primarily we like to try to work together with organizers and with people that are that are, have already developed a set of demands to then um, provide additional support to those campaigns by 
um, you know, using legal means. So it, it may be that um, the organizing is is just a, a spark, and then and then it is the addition of uh, media, it's the addition of legal strategy that together then helps produce the groundswell and the um, sort of public dialogue necessary to. Um, to push for uh, a different a different solution uh, to push for acceptance of the demands of the of the organizing but you know in terms of of other campaigns I think uh, the act up campaign um, which was around AIDS HIV in uh, in the US silences death that's really inspiring in uh, in this particular um, on this particular issue but then of course you know there there are many other movements there's you know the black lives matter movement there are um, movements for the housing justice and, uh, you know, lots of uh, movements that use a sort of complex set of, of tactics that are, you know, include law, but also include grassroots organizing, uh, media work, cultural work, and and many other things to to really shift um, public public perspective and public dialogue on these issues. And so that's the kind of groundswell that I think is is really important here. And um, and I, I see it it happening um, in in many places, but it it does need to be louder. And uh, I appreciate the efforts of Medico in uh, in Germany to to do that. And and we hope to continue to support them as well as other movements in really bringing out the stories, uh, the the real life experiences of of people who are uh, whose whose lives are being impacted by um, the callous refusal to support the the waiver. Yes, thank you. So um, yes, let's come to our last question, which is um, also from the audience. Which concrete measures would you like to see? I uh, put I add to it in an ideal world from the German government. So let's say after the elections end of this month, we have the ideal government. What would the German government do, Andreas? <laughs> So, uh, of course, first to sign all the, to sign the waiver, which would but uh, accompany. No, the the most important thing is probably really to put his authority behind really and not making making the companies to cooperate with the existing international structures to really make uh, vaccines as possible as quickly available as possible. <laughs> Being in the WHO technology transfer hub that is now being started in South Africa to make very clear that BioNTech must BioNTech and uh, and uh, CureVac and and whoever in Germany holds crucial technology on this needs to cooperate with this fully and. and pushing this, even if they cannot enforce this legally because they hadn't put it in the names. This is, this is the, one, the one issue I would like in signing the waiver, obviously. And also backing this technology transfer with some substantial funding that really shows, give a showcase that this makes it possible. And, and also stopping using these arguments that that uh, patents have nothing to do with the scarcity of, of vaccines. I think this also is in the discourse, of course, very persistent in the German public still. So this I would wish. Thank you. Acha. I'm going to go a little further uh, uh, to add to what Andreas has said. Uh, I think if we were to think forward, and, and it's hard to do that in the middle of a pandemic, but I would like to, I would like the German government to understand that pharmaceutical monopolies are a bad, inefficient, and cruel system of giving us, Germans and the world, new medicines and vaccines to abolish it, to abolish it and replace it with 
prize funds with any number of alternative methods of rewarding and incentivizing pharmaceutical innovation that works for Germany, that works for the world, that democratizes the production because there aren't monopolies associated with new pharmaceuticals, but also allows states like Germany to actually do more, like to find out, for instance, whether you know one Pfizer dose works better with one AstraZeneca dose than with than two Pfizer doses, right? There are so many things that we can't do that we don't know among all of these competing treatments because they're all privately owned. Now, if they were publicly funded and in fact then publicly manufactured, states, medical authorities, they would have so much more power in deciding what truly is the best set of treatments that we need. As, as people who funded this. So abolishing the system of monopolies, that is what I'd hope for. Thank you. Mina. Well, I agree with everything that has been said before, but uh, but I, I guess I would add to that, um, you know, looking forward, there has been a, a proposal on the table and, and I don't know how popular it is politically, but I'm really interested in um, an international pandemic treaty. So legal frameworks that help to codify some of the things that Achal is suggesting that that we do going forward to prevent um, the kinds of dynamics that we see coming up now. Um, it should be it should already be in a matter of international law that states uh, cooperate together, that um, the knowledge and, and technology on how to produce these publicly funded you know, vaccines and therapeutics uh, should not just exist in private hands, but they should be um, able to be leveraged by by, by um, the international community working as uh, in in concert with each other to um, to address what is uh, a global issue. So I think um, I would just say, in addition to what everything what everybody else said, I think Germany could show great um, leadership at the international level, uh, both in terms of you know the trips waiver, but also in terms of helping to put into place um, enforceable. Uh, international legal obligations going forward that we can then use um, to to actually, you know, litigate and protect the the rights of of uh, of the vulnerable. Thank you, of everybody. Thank you. This has been um, a very very inspiring last round. Uh, despite the um, yeah all the the bad news we we usually receive. When it comes to the crisis and government's uh, uh, stubbornness of, you know, effectively wanting to deal with this, um, I want to thank you for for your attention. I, I really, yeah, I think what I'm taking away is once again, you know, with how many bad arguments that apparently seem scientific or or you know very reasonable, with how many bad arguments the debate is really being poisoned in in Germany but also worldwide. I'm very glad that uh, Achal and and you, Andreas, that you, you know, once again, you know, raised some of those issues where, where the public is also oftentimes really misled. And I want to thank you, Mina, for, for also pointing out that, you know, the, the human rights obligations that governments have to the global right of, to health, that it also involves um, the international, the, the obligation to international cooperation. And I think that is something that is enshrined in the uh, International Covenant for Economic, Social and Cultural Rights, but that is actually not invoked enough. And when should it, you know, in a pandemic, that's probably the time where it's most uh, timely to actually talk about this much more. Um, and also to use law and the rights argument and legal procedures um, as a way to make voices of those that suffer most heard. No? So I, I want to thank you for, for that part. 
So um, thank you again for being with me. Thank you, Achal, for, for bearing with us so late into the night. Thank you. And now I want to remind our audience that we have another event on September 22nd um, with Ben Hayes, Isha Kandelwal and Wolfgang um, will be moderating the panel. And I think if everything turns out well, they will all be sitting in presence here on this panel. So um, no one will need to be through on, on Zoom if, if uh, COVID and circumstances allow. So thank you again. Thank you, Ed. Thank you. Thank you, Andreas.